Good evening, everyone. I'm over here at church uh, tonight, Saturday night. Tomorrow is the fourth Sunday in Lent. And uh, given our present circumstances, we're using this method to um, uh, gather around uh, the word, specifically the gospel. So we gather uh, together today on this fourth Sunday in Lent as the covenant community in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our collect uh, for the fourth Sunday in Lent as we join our minds and hearts together in this prayer. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world. Evermore give us this bread that he may live in us and we in him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, we're in the Gospel of John. Uh, specifically, we've been in the Gospel of John since Ash Wednesday, uh, beginning in uh, John chapter 13, which of course uh, begins the upper room event, or some call it the supper room event with Christ washing the disciples' feet. And then, as we've seen, Jesus has a, a confrontation with Peter. And so we asked the question on Wednesday, do you know yourself? And we, we floated the idea that it's possible that between chapters 13 and 14 that Peter, uh, in a similar manner to Judas, leaves the room, goes out in the street, the same streets uh, that Judas goes out to. One, of course, into apostasy, the other into a crucial um, lapse of his faith. Uh, we know that he will have a lapse of his faith because Christ uh, tells him uh, before this night is over, before the morning comes, you will deny me three times. And then we spent the first two Sundays in Lent uh, in John chapter 14 asking the question, do you know the Father? Uh, we entitled those messages, uh, Let Me Tell You About My Father. Uh, today, and uh, Lord willing, the next Sunday, which will, will obviously be the fifth Sunday in Lent, uh, we will be in John chapter 15 asking the question, Do you know the Son? And then our plan is to spend the last Sunday in Lent and uh, Easter Sunday in John chapter 16 asking the question, do you know the Holy Spirit? Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to join together in this place uh, for corporate worship on Easter Day. Uh, but if not, we'll continue to use uh, this method to uh, forge ahead. Uh, my expectation is that the season of Easter will be spent uh, kind of mopping up 
uh, a lot of the uh, material that has been suggested by our, this is kind of a quick uh, flight through uh, Jesus' Upper Room Discourse. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner calls it uh, Jesus' systematic, uh, compact systematic theology or Jesus' small catechism. And we're just kind of flying through it, uh, kind of grazing uh, the mountaintops. So we'll, we'll spend, Lord willing, uh, the season of Easter up through Pentecost Sunday on May 31st, uh, maybe kind of retracing our steps a little bit and covering some of the issues uh, that we didn't really cover in as much depth as, as we would like. Fundamentally, uh, this series so far has been about the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the denomination that introduced me to Jesus uh, as, a, as a small child, I believe, misread uh, the biblical texts that define this doctrine. Uh, even my education in, in, in that denomination taught me to militate against a caricature of this most important doctrine. And even though I was taught by the leading Oneness Pentecostal theologian at that time, uh, even, even that did not prevent the, the real issues from being dealt in a cursory manner. But later on, while reading a, a book by an Assembly of God author by the name of Carl from back, the name of the book was God in Three Persons, I uh, slowly came to the sad realization that I could not answer the questions he raised. And since that time, I have studied the classical doctrine of the Trinity and would uh, frankly describe myself as subscribing to the doctrine as it is first uh, defined or approached in the Apostles' Creed and more fully developed in the, Nicene, in the Nicene Creed. What some people often describe as a mystery or, or something that no one can fully understand or it's just often simply dismissed as being a non-essential teaching, I personally have come to see uh, that it is a a fundamental distinction, a foundational belief of Christianity. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, the, the great preacher from Westminster Chapel in, in London, is uh, much more dogmatic on this subject. Listen to him. He said, let me also warn you before we go any further that we are not only dealing with a great and mysterious subject, but with one which makes demands upon us and upon our thought and our attention. But it is essential, and I am anxious that I should deal with the case of anybody who may be thinking, well, uh, I really have not much time to be interested in doctrine like this. I'm just a simple believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, if you take that position, you are utterly unscriptural. 
So what is uh, the basic premise of this approach? I, I stumbled across this outline of John uh, chapters 14 through 16 and Frederick Dale Bruner's commentary on the Gospel of John. Uh, as I said, he calls this section, section Jesus Compact Systematic Theology or Jesus uh, Small Catechism. It is an extended teaching session in the upper room after Jesus washes the disciples' feet and institutes the Lord's Supper, what we celebrate today as Holy Communion. Bruner suggests that Jesus is giving a sermon on the Father in chapter 14, uh, using the name Father, quote-unquote Father, some 23 times, which uh, is in, a, in and of itself unusual. In chapter 15, Bruner suggests that it contains Jesus' sermon on the Son, and then in chapter 16, you can probably see where this is going. In chapter 16 of the Gospel of John is Jesus' sermon on the Holy Spirit. Uh, so today we will look at John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, which I will read uh, for you. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Please follow along. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Eight, this is from the ESV, the Holy Gospel. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Uh, the Gospel of the Lord, and praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So if uh, I put a title to this message uh, today, it would be, let me tell you about myself. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you've given us another week, another week to be in your presence. And we pray now as we face these difficult times um, that you will give your people strong assurance, confidence, 
for the days to come that we may love our neighbors as ourselves and love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I, I was saying, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner is the fertile soil in which this seed, this thought of mine has been planted. So let's hear from him again as he introduces us to chapter 15. The extent of chapter 15's concentration on Jesus, the Son of the Father, can be gauged by the frequency of Jesus' use of the first-person pronoun referring to himself either uh, as I, me, my, or mine, no fewer than 44 times in 27 verses, or, Bruner says, 46 times in 31 verses, if we carry chapter 15 sermon, as most commentaries do, into chapter 16 and verse 4. He goes on to say, using the NRSV, the, the New Revised Standard Version uh, English translation, I counted Jesus making 60, 60 first person references in the 27 or 31 verses of our 15th chapter. And he notes that there are almost then two first person references in every verse. Um, this is significant. The first word in John chapter 15 in, in the Greek is the word ego, E-G-O, uh, translated in, into English as I. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. Um, as you can see, it's the word that we get, uh, the English word that we know as ego from. Uh, we might say, uh, you know, that person, all they do is talk about themselves. And um, we conclude that uh, we tell somebody we're having a conversation with uh, that uh, they must be an egotist. Or we might say uh, a person walks away and we, we might uh, whisper to ourselves, that person is so egotistical. And in some ways, and I say this uh, not irreverently or disrespectfully, in some ways, Jesus could be accused of doing this in chapter 15. When you consider, though, the overall context of chapters 14, 15, and 16, uh, we see that Jesus really doesn't do this because in chapter 14, as I said, Jesus is telling us about his father. And in chapter 16, he's going to tell us about his uh, best friend, the Holy Spirit. So given the context, the chapter before the chapter after, we, we couldn't really conclude uh, that Jesus is egotistical in the sense that a mere human being would be. Um, he's placing himself in the midst of a larger conversation about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, The Bible make itself makes it very plain and clear 
that the whole essence of the Christian position is dependent upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the thing that separates the Christian faith from all other religions. Their founders, while important, are not absolutely essential to them. If Buddha had never existed, you could still have Buddhism. This is Jones again. If Muhammad had never lived, you could still have Islam. In other religion, it is the teaching that matters and the person is not essential. Other persons might have done it equally well and the teaching would remain unaltered. But that, Jones says, is not the case with the Christian faith. Christianity is Christ himself. And Jones uh, presses this point. He says, it is not enough to say, uh, rather glibly, I would add, I believe in Jesus Christ. The New Testament asks you questions when you say that. It asks, what do you believe about him? Is he man only? Is he God only? Did he really come in the flesh or did he not? What did he do? What is the meaning of his death? These are questions that must be answered. Uh, and these are some of the questions that Jesus addresses in John chapter 15. Many years ago, when I uh, first started pastoring, which is, it's hard to believe, uh, 45 years ago, I, I quickly came to the conclusion that I did not know how to prepare a sermon. And even though I had graduated from a school whose uh, slogan motto was the school that develops preachers, my uh, first Sundays in the pulpit, as I remember them now, were absolutely terrifying. Besides the patience of my uh, first congregation, my only salvation was and always has been reading. So in my distress, I decided to scour the used bookstores in Connecticut and even uh, frequent garage sales or tag sales in Massachusetts, rummaging through many an attic. I discovered J. Monroe Gibson. I discovered J. D. Jones. I discovered uh, John Cumming, and I discovered uh, Henry Lydon. And this, this is the book uh, that I have. The, the cover's falling off of it, but for both covers, actually. But for some reason, I've been able uh, to keep it together. Uh, these were wordsmiths, these men were. They, they uh, had developed uh, the fine art of hammering out a message on the anvil of classical oratory. And reading their books uh, disciplined me. And eventually it instilled in me the rhythm of preaching. Uh, Lydon 
had given in the 19th century, had given eight lectures on the divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he spent much time in the Gospel of John. And I was, as I was uh, reading through the Gospel of John, I remembered this phrase that uh, was his, he owns it, and it stuck with me all these years. Uh, speaking of Christ, he said, he distinctly, repeatedly, energetically preaches himself. He distinctly, repeatedly, energetically preaches himself. So in John chapter 15 and verse 1, we have an example of this when Christ says, I am the true vine. I, I am the real uh, connection that you have with uh, life, not only life in this life, but eternal life. And then he goes on to say in verse 5 of chapter 15, the, these rather audacious words. It, it, it is an audacious claim. If anyone else said it, uh, we, we don't really under, recognize it's the audaciousness of this claim unless someone points it out to us because we're used to this language from Christ. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But this is not the only time that Christ preaches himself in John's gospel. Uh, listen to Bruner again. He says, this is the seventh and last of Jesus. I am with a predicate, quote unquote. I am with a predicate sayings, and it is one of the most impressive. So if this is the seventh and last one, where are the other six? Uh, let me just review that quickly for, for you. You're probably very familiar with this. In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8.12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10.7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. And a few verses later, in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what we saw in the last two weeks in, uh, in the 14th chapter of John, particularly in verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, he, here's a, a little taste of uh, Lydon for you, and it, it's. I know I shouldn't. I shouldn't read a quote this long, but but just try to listen if you can. He's speaking of Christ. He speaks of himself as the light of a darkened world, as the way by which man may ascend to heaven, as the truth which can really satisfy the cravings of the soul, as the life which must be imparted to all who would live in very deed to all who would really live forever. He is the bread of life. We heard that in the colic today. He is the living bread that came down from heaven. Believers in him will feed on him and will have eternal life. 
He points to a living water of the Spirit, which he can give and which will quench the thirst of souls that drink it. All who came before him, he characterizes as having been, by comparison with himself, the thieves and robbers of mankind. Just a little bit more of Lydon. He is himself the one good shepherd of the souls of men. He knows and he is known of his true sheep. Not only is he the shepherd, he is the very door of the sheepfold. To enter through him is to be saved. He is the vine. This is our text today. He is the vine, the life tree of regenerate humanity. And you, can, you might be able to see uh, behind me uh, this icon, which is entitled Christ, uh, the true vine. Uh, the, the apostles are assembled as branches in this tree and Christ, of course, uh, occupying uh, the center focus of the icon. All that is truly fruitful and lovely, Lydon again, in the human family must branch forth from him. All spiritual life must wither and die if it be severed from his. He stands consciously between heaven and earth. And Lydon goes on uh, like this for another 25 pages, and I'm sure uh, you don't have the patience for that. Now, let me ask you a question. From what other human being, mere human being, would we tolerate some client, such claims? Uh, none. Uh, Josh, uh, Josh McDowell uh, wrote the book. I think he picked up on C.S. Lewis thought, and maybe Lewis picked it up from Lydon. But the idea that Christ is either Lord, as he claims to be, or he's a bad man and he's a liar, or he's a madman and he's a lunatic, Lord, liar, or lunatic. To make the claims he made, either he would have to be lying through his teeth or, as we used to say, crazier than a dingbat, or he actually is who he claims to be, the true vine, without whom we as human beings, as followers or disciples, can do nothing. Lydon's phrase again, he distinctly, energetically, and repeatedly preached himself with no allowance for indifference. The Jews, of course, who were God-fearers and well acquainted with Holy Scripture, understood that Jesus was making this claim, uh, that he was more than a man. In the fifth chapter of John, after Jesus uh, healed a man at the pool of Bethesda, and it happened to be on the Sabbath, um, John tells us that the Jews sought to kill Christ. Uh, why was that? If you look at uh, the 18th verse of John chapter 5, it, it was not only that he had not kept the, uh, the law of the Sabbath, 
the command to keep the Sabbath day holy. But John chapter 5, verse 18 says this, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? Does he say, oh, but, yeah, no, I, I don't mean that. Um, here, here, forgive me. I, I, I've offended you. Let's back up here. Let's have a conversation uh, about this. See if we can straighten this out because I would like to win friends and influence people. No, his, his response, um, I'll borrow uh, David's wife's critique of David when he danced before the Lord, he became even more vile. He said, an hour, this is verses 25 and 26 of chapter 5, an hour is coming and is now here. Here, here he is, the Lord of earthly time. When Jesus says, the hour is here, all of eternity bends itself to fulfill that declaration. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear whose voice? The voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And why should we not believe this? And why should, should he not have the right to say this? He says uh, in John chapter 11, in, in the face of Mary and Martha's grief, I am the resurrection and the life. And if he is the resurrection and the life, he certainly has the authority and power to give men abundant life in this life. Well, I'll, I'll close with this. It, it's, it's so obvious that it, it almost embarrasses me to say that this is the point of the message. But here it is. The most important relationship you have in this life or will ever have in this life is the vital connection, your life-giving relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. I remind you of the text again. Without me, you can do nothing. And this past week, uh, I, I'd spent several days, almost 10 days in Connecticut and uh, Rick Stoffel and I drove back uh, from Connecticut this past Wednesday. We left about three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I began thinking about that. I got home and, and uh, the quarantine that we're under, it, it may be that as Jesus says, my father is the, is the, uh, garden keeper. He is the one that does the pruning. It may be that we are uh, right now being pruned. We may be experiencing pruning by the Father's hand. 
in some ways, it's as if God has said to us, so, so I understand, I get it, you've been busy, and you haven't had much time to spend with me. I think of the old song, I miss my time with you. And you haven't had time to come to church, so <laughs> let me help you with that. Uh, we're stuck at home. And it's as if God says, you know, you, you, you didn't display any minimal moral code at all um, in a crowd. So uh, let me arrange that you uh, separate yourself unto me. This text tells us that Jesus wants to live with us. He wants to abide with us. The Father and the Son mutually indwelling in one another. The Son in which the divine and human natures mutually indwell one another. The Father and the Son want to mutually indwell you and me to make their home in and with us. And it may be that just now, this time that God is giving to us is actually an extending of God's mercy to us so that we might focus on our vital connection with the Father through the Son. I don't know if it's the end of the age or not. Um, all the experts seem to say that this is not an existential threat, meaning that they don't believe that it has the potential to wipe out the whole human race. But one thing I do know, I do know that whatever eschatological system you subscribe to, all eschatological systems end with every man and woman, boy and girl, who's ever been born standing before the judgment seat of Christ. I woke up the other day singing, the kingdoms of this world shall soon before him fall. We shall see the king when he comes. Christians believe that the king is coming. Christ has a right to preach about himself. In fact, he has an obligation to preach about himself. He has earned the right to preach about himself. And we should humbly submit ourselves to his words and give Christ a listen. Let me tell you about myself. Will you make room for him? Do you know the Son? Amen. Father, thank you once more. You are the sustainer of our lives. What a privilege it is for us to gather around your word. I pray protection, confident assurance, wisdom, provision, for your people, 
I pray that you'll open the windows of heaven and pour out on your people a blessing that they cannot contain, that can only be shared with others. Do this for your glory, we pray. In the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship